Hi, it's Manny Jewels. I am the Chief Commissioner of the First Nations Tax Commission. Hi, I'm Greg Richard with the Fiscal Realities Economist. Our topic today is, is the gaps preventing First Nations from fully participating in the Canadian economy. And we might uh, also bridge that gap and talk about how the resolution of First Nation issues is going to help uh, provincial and federal governments uh, address some of the challenges of underinvestment that have happened in the last few years. As you know, Canada has, uh, like many countries, now faces a huge fiscal challenge that's been brought about by the uh, the, economic, the shutdown of the economy as a result of the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, federal government's deficit this year is over $300 billion, which absolutely dwarfs anything that's happened in the past. I think there's this is going to have serious, and then there's provincial deficits, which are even in many respects, even more challenging. Um, provinces are facing an enormous challenge already in financing healthcare in the future. They're all very well aware of this. This is going to really exacerbate those challenges. And we'd like to make the point today that First Nations can and should be a major part of a recovery strategy for Canada and helping Canada meet this uh, this giant, gigantic challenge. And we believe that the we have several problems right now that have prevented First Nations from participating in the economy and have had serious implications for investment into Canada. And we have defined these as five, uh, five gaps that have prevented First Nations from unlocking their economic potential. And uh, we have today, uh, Annie has been a long time, I, I have to say, in my opinion, is probably the leading First Nations uh, expert on just exactly the nature of these and what we need to do about them, and we're going to discuss them today. Yeah, the fiscal gap, I guess, uh, you know, the, the estimates are up, upwards of 30, 30 plus billion dollars. And uh, one of the things that's obviously the root cause of it is that we've been legislated out of the economy, and that's primarily because of the Indian Act. But it's also, you know, it goes right back to the whole colonial approach. Uh, once uh, First Nations were placed on reserve, that's uh, allowed the federal and provincial governments to exploit uh, all of the natural resources and then cut off our jurisdiction from those resources so that we couldn't exploit it, uh, uh, you know, economically, which we did in the past. And one of the I guess the, the the big things about it is, you know, uh, trying to now get back into the uh, fiscal relationship uh, that Canada has well established since the, the beginning of, of, uh, of Canada as a, as a country. And that uh, what, what I've been advocating lately has been a cannabis tax uh, that would simply mean uh, amending Bill C-40 five uh, so that we would be able to ultimately have our own stamp and generate revenue not only through uh, you know the goods and services sales tax but also uh, and a big part of it would be the excise tax uh, you know when you look at uh, the amount of uh, taxes that are collected off of uh, Indian reserves right now it's uh, it's quite uh, staggering to think that uh, the federal and provincial governments, because of their, their jurisdiction over uh, Indian reserves, are able to collect uh, substantially more than First Nations. So right now we're collecting about $70 million a year on, on reserve lands. And that's all taxes? That, that's just real property tax. But when you consider income tax, uh, sales taxes, both federal and provincial uh, the excise tax, uh, which all of us uh, pay as as First Nations, and so that applies to, uh, you know, gasoline consumption, diesel, uh, any fuels, uh, propane, uh, tobacco, and uh, uh, you know we here on the Kamloops Reserve we call it the fat tax, fuel, alcohol, and tobacco, and all of that's governed uh, and expended in. Uh, uh, you know, either by Health Canada when it comes to health, expending cigarette sales on on the Six Nations Reserve uh, because of Grand River Enterprises, uh, the federal government on that development alone, uh, which manufactures cigarettes, is about $300 million a year. 
So it's a, a substantial uh, amount of money that leaves our communities, and it's, and I I always say that it's more than than the programs that the federal and provincial governments give back to uh, First Nations, and so uh, what I've been doing is advocating that we have a, a First Nations uh, resource charge off of off of reserve lands within our traditional territories, and uh, uh, within our treaty lands. And that I believe that would uh, facilitate a lot more resource development uh, because First Nations, one, would be able to garner uh, tax revenue. And that's critically important d- during this COVID uh, period because it's, uh, you know, it's easily demonstrable that the federal and provincial governments, because of tax jurisdiction, have got a, a, uh, a credit rating, whereas First Nations uh, right now during this COVID uh, pandemic are completely dependent outside of real property tax and a few communities with uh, First Nations goods and commodity taxes are completely dependent on the federal government and its programs. And so, you know, if if we want to change that, uh, we have to have a new fiscal relationship. And uh, this has been something that's been discussed with uh, for amongst First Nations for quite some time now. Uh, I remember when we first started talking about it, it was, you know, uh, uh, during the constitutional discussions. And during that period of time, uh, or should I say right when it ended with Charlottetown, uh, that was one of the first studies that uh, we undertook with uh, Tom Crescene from Queen's University, analyzing uh, how much... uh, uh, all of us, you know, what the, what really what the, the fiscal uh, uh, shortfall is, and that led to uh, all of the work that, that I continue to do to this day, uh, which is pursuing a true fiscal relationship, not one based on, on uh, programs, but uh, through our jurisdiction, inherently on reserve and off reserve. So just to be clear, you're saying that other governments are collecting sales and excise tax uh, off the reserve, but that's not being returned to the reserve, and you want to change that. Well, you know, the, the, the argument is is that they do re- return some of the monies uh, through program deliveries, but it's nowhere near the amount of revenues that are collected uh, on the reserves. Uh, so just looking at my own uh, home community of Kamloops, uh, when you consider the amount of revenue that's collected in in the goods and services sales tax, the income tax from people that are working on uh, Mount Paul Industrial Park, there must be at least 2,000, uh, probably more like 3,000 people that work on the reserve. Uh, and all of the excise tax that's collected through the gas stations, t- tobacco sales, liquor sales, uh, it adds up uh, to a su- substantial amount. I think our estimates are as high as about $170 million a year just in those areas. That's not to you know, look at uh, how much, uh, ec- because of the economic t- activity, how much the, it, uh, all of uh, you know, the First Nations generate across the country. So it's, it's got to be in the billions of dollars that uh, First Nations uh, uh, generate, uh, but uh, you know the amount of programs we get on a national basis is up up now about uh, seventeen billion dollars a year, and so if we look at you know what we could potentially garnering and and generating amongst ourselves, that's that's where we came up with the figure of thirty billion, so it would be you know substantially more, uh, just about twice as much as as uh, the poverty. Uh, program deliveries uh, that that we get right now from the federal government. So the basis of this fiscal relationship in your mind is is we're going to end this practice of collecting tax off reserves, delivering it to other governments, and having them return some of it in programs. And you're just going to collect that tax directly, or some of it. Well, some of it. Uh, I you know I think that uh, because we live in a in a federation, uh, I don't think that we're you know. Uh, I think that we all should make a contribution to national uh, institutions that benefit us all. 
but I'd love to be able to, to say uh, sometime in the future that the majority of revenues that are collected within our uh, reserve lands and uh, come back to our community so that we'd be able to to deal with uh, programs of our choosing and of our development and uh, that meet the needs of our community members both on and off reserve. And what happened with the property tax? Like when you, you assume the property tax room and were you able to increase the value of that property tax when it was put into your hands? Oh, absolutely. When we first started thinking about property tax, it... Uh, we thought, uh, you know, initially that would, there'd be about seven communities taking advantage of it. Uh, now there's about 110 communities across the country. And the amount of revenue, as I mentioned, is $70 million a year. So it's, you know, it's it, it, since uh, First Nations have been occupying the property tax field, it's generated over a billion dollars. And uh, uh, so it's, you know, it's it's grown uh, to the extent that uh, it'll, you know, the, the the property tax room will never go away now. And because you've got uh, jurisdiction at the community level, you're able to provide local services, uh, i.e. garbage, water, sewer. And that means that individual uh, members of the community are employed in those areas, providing those necessary services. It means uh, better health care, uh, better education, and the like, uh, just simply because you've got the jurisdiction and it lasts a lot longer. And, and as a matter of fact, you can go to, you know, the bank and uh, to the First Nations Finance Authority. Uh, ultimately, I hope that we'll be able to do that and, and generate even more revenues uh, to develop more programs, more infrastructure. So when you have local jurisdiction, that's that's what that means. And, it, you know, when we first started doing this, one of the funny things about about all of this is that we weren't really considered natural uh, persons and couldn't get into contracts. And when I say that uh, today, most people kind of like, you know, they, they don't even remember that time. And uh, all of that's changed uh, because of the jurisdiction. People enter into, you know, communities enter into contracts uh, probably every day now uh, without even thinking about it nor uh, the partners that they deal with uh, and that's a re- direct result of the of the the legislation that was passed in 1988 and the other thing is uh, the the Kamloops amendment of 1988 just didn't apply to real property tax it applied to all uh, developments as a result of of uh, designating lands for uh, commercial or industrial or uh, whatever other purposes. And that's led to an explosion of, of development on reserve lands. And mind you, now uh, that's been taken over largely by the, the First Nations Lands Management Board. But uh, the root of, of that goes right back to the Kamloops Amendment in 1988. And so this has been a real catalyst for the development of, of like, well, Kamloops and other other First Nations. Oh, you could see it. Uh, you know, with with Kamloops, uh, we were able to do the, the the Sun Rivers development as a direct result of real property tax. We were able to put in our own water system uh, through its many uh, machinations, and uh, that's only because of of property tax jurisdiction. And you see it in many of the other communities like, like West Bank, uh, you know, Squamish, uh, able to enter into, uh, you know, local service agreements with its neighbors and, and even doing more and more development as a direct result of property tax. And that uh, holds true right across the country, no matter which province or, or jurisdiction. And what do you think is going to happen with the if you could take control of these of the excise taxes and the sales tax, is it another order of magnitude? Oh, absolutely. That you know, when I when I think about the potential, uh, and not only for the development of our own programs, but particularly levering that uh, in terms of building more business ready infrastructure uh, and improving the quality of life of our communities, uh, it's going to just uh, explode. Uh, and that, 
you know, uh, that is is without question what what would happen if we took uh, control of and had the jurisdiction or at least a shared jurisdiction over the excise tax uh, over um, greater uh, parts of of the uh, goods and services sales tax and income taxes uh, we would be able to because uh, you know our and and just to clarify the jurisdiction will always rest with the first nation communities what we're advocating is that we have a shared jurisdiction across the country through the development of national institutions that strengthens our our uh, our unity it strengthens uh, our jurisdiction and it strengthens the ability for us to come up with standards uh, because that's really opened up the door so we what i advocate is a good strong uh, uh, legislative base uh, so that we've got uh, the machinery of government but at the same time having a huge amount of flexibility with uh, with uh, regula- regulations and standards um, one of the issues that faced that First Nations is, is is a lot of First Nations have been shut out from the economy so long that they've really um, a lot of the skills that other governments and uh, take for granted have really atrophied as a result. For instance, investment facilitation skills, a wide range of skill sets that were involved in that, and and First Nations were simply out of the picture with respect to attracting investment into their into their territory, etc. The same goes with a lot of services and infrastructure provision because this has been taken over by central authorities in Ottawa, etc. And it's become really difficult to sort of, it's like, it's like starting a car that hasn't run for 20 years. You have to restore all kinds of systems. And you've had quite a role in, in bringing this about, partly learning by doing. But lately you've been really involved in setting up things like the Tulo Center of Indigenous Economics and the First Nations Infrastructure Institute. Uh, do you want to say a few words about what these are going to do to help First Nations um, um, recover the capacities and skills they need to develop their own economies and infrastructure and run sound tax systems? I think this really came about as a result directly as, a, as my experience as a council member uh, for Kamloops and, and, uh, and also the early developments with the Shuswap Nation through the development of the Shuswap Cultural Education Society. I realized really early on that education, as in the, the words of Chief Ron Ignis, is in both a weapon or a tool. And that's demonstrated, of course, by the whole experience uh, of the residential schools. You know, residential schools were really, when they first developed, uh, would move three grades every generation. So you'd get up to grade three and grade six and grade nine. And then by 1952, here in Kamloops, uh, you could graduate actually with a grade 12 education. And uh, I remember a story my dad told me when he passed grade nine, he wanted to continue his education. uh, And he was told that uh, if he wanted to, he would have to become a priest. And he said, well, no, I don't want to do that. It is... uh, really really quite quite something and so you know education early on where you know you were uh, because of residential schools were formerly industrial schools and so you learned industrial type type skills Uh, you know you you learned how to work for somebody Uh, you learned how to uh, you know raise cattle you learned how to fix uh, saddles you learned how to milk cows you learned how to sew you learned how to you know do all of those uh, those types of skills as opposed to you know mathematics and science uh, so that you could actually have technological uh, development uh, so early on the uh, federal government and and the, through the development of residential schools looked at uh, the training uh, of First Nations basically as a as a labor force as a, as opposed to an you know uh, an intellectual capacity type uh, education, and so when I first started out, we looked at uh, developing Skelep School, which was an elementary school, and uh, we started that from grade. I, I guess the first experience here on the Kamloops Reserve was really the development of a kindergarten. But the, the experiences that I've seen right across the country have been pretty much that. Uh, 
you know, looking at uh, a lot of the early debates was Indian control of Indian education. Out of that came the Native Indian teacher training program. Uh, Kindergarten started, elementary schools started, and this is after day schools uh, were closing down, residential schools were closing down, and we were involved in what was called in the 1960s integration where we'd be integrated into the public school system. And so uh, when I was uh, an early counselor, uh, you know, in the early 1970s, uh, we looked at getting control of our education. And that meant uh, reaching out and working with the local school district at the time, which was really unprecedented uh, here in our area, and looking at trying to develop curriculum. And of course, uh, that took us Uh, you know, nine years just to develop curriculum because there was literally no funding for it. And once we had the curriculum developed, uh, one of the most interesting things is that the teachers didn't want to begin to teach it because of of, uh, a lot of them were unionized in the public school system. They didn't want to take on added responsibility of learning a different uh, a curriculum that was uh, not mandated by the provincial government at that point. And so we went about working with nine different school districts uh, to get not only the, the, board, uh, the board's approval to, uh, to have curriculum uh, injected into their regular schools, but also we had to begin to work with the, uh, uh, the, the, the teachers' uh, unions and get them to on side so that they would be more amenable to uh, using our curriculum that we developed uh, into the public schools. Of course, it was easier with band-operated schools, but there weren't that many at that point. And so, uh, you know, now we've got uh, a school at Adams Lake, Chief Atom, that's completely, uh, just about everything is done in, in Shushwap or Shuhwapwuch. And so you've got a range of of schools now that are on reserve, but they've been perpetually underfunded by the federal government uh, to the tune of about 60%. And then we started looking at, uh, through the uh, Shushwap Cultural Education Society, different training programs. And once we started to train uh, carpenters and and other, uh, you know, skill sets that we needed on reserve, uh, you know, to develop kind of like an infant uh, economy. Uh, Lo and behold, the funds were shut off uh, for carpentry training and the like because the union said that if you have to be, if you're going to be trained, then you have to become a union member. Well, you know, so a lot of those programs started to dry up. And then uh, once we set up the... Uh, First Nations Tax Commission, one of the first things I I decided I I wanted to pursue was the development of TULO, which was a a center for Indigenous economics. And what I wanted to uh, impart really was the the knowledge that was being built up uh, with the First Nations Tax Commission, but also a new way of thinking about our issues, which is not just, uh, you know, simply... uh, programs or social programs that would fix the, pro- the, 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 the economy, but a real uh, approach uh, that used science and a practical approach that would change uh, how we would reach out and, and teach uh, uh, administ- tax administrators and then moving into economics. What is the science of economics and how can we you know, transfer knowledge uh, between uh, really, it's intergenerational now, uh, and how can we use uh, this, uh, you know, institution uh, to further, uh, you know, the knowledge base the, within our communities, but also begin to uh, have real changes. So when, when the uh, tax commission has a, a standards uh, change, and that happens quite a bit, uh, just because you know property tax, people seem to think that it's well, it's. You know, it's the same all the time, but it isn't. It changes on an annual basis through court cases uh, and through a number of other, you know, uh, different uh, approaches that makes the system a little bit better. And without a national institution, you can't 
really accommodate uh, what happens at a local community unless you've got, you know, uh, an institution like uh, Tulu that that would uh, support them. And the other thing is that we started to reach out to, uh, you know, on a on a philosophical basis on who would who would who could we work with, and so that's how we started to develop a working relationship with the Naitahu and on the South Island of uh, New Zealand. And we've now started to to look at uh, a working relationship with the National uh, Tax uh, uh, Alliance in the United States. And all of that is related to, you know, trying to bring like-minded First Nations communities together, trying to teach a different way of looking at at the, the shortfall that all of the other institutions really aren't aren't teaching at this point, you know, a lot of, uh, of universities teach uh, from a, uh, uh, you know, a theoretical standpoint. But my 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 approach has always been melding the two, using a theoretical standpoint, but also a practical approach so that people would be able to actually apply what they learn uh, in their home communities. And that's, that's uh, in my view, been very successful. And, you know, just the word itself, uh, Tulo, uh, meaning profit. And the whole thing about, uh, you know, uh, using the Chinook languages that in and of itself was a trade language uh, that we spoke from uh, Northern California to uh, uh, to Alaska, and it facilitated trade amongst us, you know, and I always tell the story that Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, when he was in Alberta filming one of his uh, movies, didn't understand, uh, you know, that uh, he thought Chinook uh, was going to be, uh, you know, a Chinook wind was melting everything, when in fact, you know, he, he was thinking it was uh, climate change. Did you want to say just a a quick word about the uh, Infrastructure Institute and just uh, some of the expertise that it's going to, this isn't, doesn't speak to education, but it does speak to capacity because some of that, you know, some of that kind of stuff's really expensive to maintain in house. And I, I'm presuming that the Finney. But it's both. It's, it's capacity and uh, education. Again, this goes back to when, when we developed our own water system here in Kamloops. Uh, one of the things I learned right away is that, you know, we've now got a facility that needs to be operated uh, 24-7, 365 days a year. And we needed uh, not just one individual to work there, but several. And so we started training, uh, screening first, and then training uh, people, you know, using mathematics and, and uh, you know, different approaches to get them up to, to par so that they could be accredited because a lot of what they, you know, have to learn uh, in terms of operating a water system is, is science-based. And uh, so once that happened, uh, we were able to meld uh, the training with the capacity, and uh, that's been very successful. So with uh, applying that to the First Nations infrastructure, that's one of the critical things is because there's going to be a, a myriad of different standards that we will have to apply. And standards are a necessary approach uh, to building infrastructure because you're literally dealing with life and death. And you want to have the, the best facilities made to the highest standards and the best training available uh, so that you can attract and maintain a a professional approach to maintaining the facilities and give people careers. And so it's a fantastic mixture of of career opportunities as well as uh, capacity building uh, with infrastructure. And infrastructure is so critically important to uh, any uh, economy, it just can't be uh, overestimated. You know, the the Trans-Canada Highway uh, facilitated a a lot of development on a national basis. Uh, And the same with the the kinds of projects that we're looking at right now on reserve lands. Uh, Without uh, proper infrastructure, you can't build homes, you can't have health facilities, you can't have sewer systems. uh, Without a road network, uh, you can't, you know, uh, further expand your, your... your your developments. Uh, one of the big thing that's that's we've been talking about lately is major projects, 
people just seem to think that that's you know applicable to uh, uh, pipelines and and the and the like. But uh, one of the biggest things about uh, infrastructure really is you know fiber optics and and uh, a different way of thinking about. Uh, the the kinds of infrastructure that we need uh, on reserve lands. Maybe we could segue. We're talking about how important that first critical piece of infrastructure, like water and sewer, for uh, the development of Sun Rivers and other types of things, and how much that increased the property values and generated the economic base. It's the same thing with West Bank. Probably a number of other stories uh, uh, like that out there in First Nation country. Well, all of the all of the developments on our lands have have required uh, infrastructure. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have had the residential development at Musqueam if it wasn't for an infrastructure uh, development. Uh, you know, an extension of of water and sewer and fire protection from the the city of Vancouver, and the same. Uh, you know, in in on the Squamish reserves. You know, the the local services. Uh, meant an awful lot and even at West Bank you know the agreement the local service agreement to extend water and sewer on the reserve from uh, the West Bank uh, municipality and the the same is true here in Kamloops uh, we had decided early on to build our own water system and that started uh, when my dad was the chief in the 1960s uh, up until you know uh, up until the 1970s we really had well water and then we bought uh, CNR out uh, their water system and uh, developed their that you know to capacity is <laughs> is really quite something. As soon as we built uh, and took over the the CNR water system, it was virtually already at capacity, <laughs> and so we immediately started to plan for the replacement of what we call the CNR water system, and uh, that required you know, 10 years of negotiations with the, the federal government through the Department of Indian Affairs. And uh, uh, we wouldn't have been able to develop that, uh, that water uh, uh, system if we didn't have tax jurisdiction. And that was one of the, the holes in, in the approach we had with, uh, with the CNR line. Uh, once we took it over, we found that we, we weren't uh, in a position really to maintain uh, governmental services over water uh, and having fire flow because once you develop a water system you've got to ensure that you've got fire flow so that you can put out fires and and whatnot and so uh, it took uh, a lot of planning uh, over a decade uh, and then we had to build the water system within a, in within a couple of years and if we didn't have tax jurisdiction, we wouldn't have been able to come up with the million dollars uh, that we needed uh, as a part of our shortfall because Indian Affairs doesn't put in infrastructure that goes beyond servicing band members. And so a lot of the, uh, the developments, uh, of course, require... Uh, you know, services beyond just band members, uh, business-ready infrastructure is what, what I like to call it. And we had a good partner in Sun Rivers. They came up with another million dollars, and we built a, a million-gallon reservoir. And that really helped to facilitate Sun Rivers' development, but that couldn't have happened on its own without having an agreement uh, with the city of Kamloops to extend its sewer uh, uh facilities onto the reserve and the reason that we chose uh, extending the you know and working with the city to extend their sewer services to the reserve is because we didn't want to have yet another facility that would be uh, pumping effluent back into the South Thompson River we wanted to have as few of those as possible so the the best scenario for us was to to work with the city of Kamloops and and we really had a good uh, working relationship with Cliff Branchflower. That required uh, a, um, a memorandum of understanding between the, the band and the city. It was really strange during those set of discussions. Two of the council members uh, opposed the, the MOU because they felt that the band would then begin to assert its jurisdiction and within the, the city of Kamloops boundaries. And of course, that wasn't what the, the agreement was. It was an agreement to work together in goodwill and cooperation. 
that would have, and it was the first uh, agreement of its type in the country, uh, where there would be joint council meetings, uh, joint resolutions, and and the like. And so with those two, we were able to facilitate the, the development at, at Sun Rivers. And really, that's what infrastructure does. It allows you to have greater uh, economic development, whether it be on a small basis uh, for a gas station uh, or for community purposes like community halls, uh, uh, community uh, buildings, uh, RCMP buildings, uh, health centers. All of those can't be put in unless you've got some type of a service, whether it be roads, uh, water, sewer, electricity, you know, and even with a lot of that, you have to deal with the three-phase power, uh, you know, and of course, we're looking at different kinds of technologies uh, as well today. And that sewer agreement with the city, that was done at your own behest, that was in using your tax revenues? Oh, yeah, we we uh, we were able to, you know, it's, it, you know, with any local service agreement, one of the things that that municipalities and this is always the you know the rub uh, wants to influence as much as it can you know the development on the reserve but without it you know you can't do you know you can't do the kinds of developments that that is necessary but it's certainly facilitated uh, you know, sun rivers which is really in my estimation the best residential uh, development in the camlops area it's uh, it's worth is over a billion dollars uh, for the for the region, and uh, you know that that kind of uh, development wouldn't have happened without infrastructure. And once you have, you know, in, infrastructure in and of itself isn't uh, the be all. You've got to have the institutional capacity. You've got to have laws. You've got to have rules. You've got to have standards enabled to enable all of that. And some of that uh, it does require uh, federal legislation, you know, and changes to, to uh, legislation. And that's one of the reasons why with, uh, you know, uh, the First Nations Infrastructure Institute, we're requesting that it be legislated. So when you've got legislation uh, and a regulatory regime, you can come up with the standards. And all of this is optional. You know, this isn't forcing any community to do something that they don't want to do. You have to first choose that you want to do it. And then there are going to be standards that have to be developed uh, because, uh, you know, it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's you're dealing with life and death situations and you want standards uh, because of the whole question surrounding liability. And liability, you know, can't be underestimated here because the more liability and the more respond, therefore responsibility we take on, the less responsibility and therefore liability that the federal government takes on. And that's one of the things that I've been telling both the federal and provincial governments. Let us begin to take care of ourselves and we'll do a better job of it. So if we connected the dots, would I be correct in saying that assuming the tax room led to your ability to develop the infrastructure and the infrastructure led to a billion dollar development just one just one of the developments on Tecumlop's land yes and it, it was it is really striking because when we first uh, looked at the property I think it was about oh Greg you're gonna have to refresh my memory I think it was about uh, six thousand eight thousand dollars an acre and uh, now the the same value is about you know three quarters of a million dollars, you know. So it's it it's substantial amount of development, and substantial amount of increase. All that was unlocked by by just having them recognize your property tax authority, which at the time to them was worth, I'm going to guess just a just a tiny 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 fraction of a billion dollars. God oh, is uh, yeah. You know, without question, you know, where you're able to lever jurisdiction to facilitate those kinds of uh, developments. But you've got to have a legislative base, you know, because, you know, in, in these kinds of and that's how the that's how the institutions developed as well, uh, you know, out of all of those experiences. Uh, because we've got to, you know, you have to deal with accountability. You have to be able to deal with 
infrastructure needs. You have to be able to have the tax jurisdiction because otherwise it would be a dual you know, tax area with the, the federal and, well, triple really. The federal government can't exercise it. The provincial government, you know, because of uh, national parks were able to exert uh, real property tax jurisdiction over reserves and that's why uh, the Self-Government Enabling Act was incredibly important to, to get the provincial government to vacate tax room so that we as First Nations would be able to occupy it. It's, this is like the issue they're facing in, in Oklahoma. You, you, you arranged tax coordination to avoid double taxation. I mean, that, that's the basic purpose of that, right? Well, you know, it, in the United States, of course, they've used the, the, the concept of compacting whereby the states would be able to vacate a portion of its tax room as long as it's able to continue to make money off of tribal developments. And now with, uh, you know, Oklahoma is just, you know, that's going to be a future podcast, but that opens up an incredible amount of, of potential. I think that the Oklahoma tribes have got to begin to think of themselves as state government. And uh, they've got to be able to, you know, assert jurisdiction over cities, major cities like uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, all, and one of the most interesting impacts of it is the, is the fact that uh, even though there, there would be fee simple ownership, that doesn't negate in any way f- the tribal jurisdiction over those lands. And so that's an incredible aspect that I want to, you know, continue to explore and to uh, expand on is the, that that potential alone, uh, you know, is, is going to be uh, just huge, huge, uh, you know, for First Nations and tribal governments. I was thinking this is a good opportunity to bring up the uh, once again, bring up the system of property rights, and what we tried to do with the uh, indigenous land title, etc., but also to talk about uh, why it's so important to have your own tax powers, etc., as you can take them to the bank. Well, yeah, the, the credit gap uh, uh, for First Nations is, is in the range of $175 billion. So it's, you know, you're, you're talking a huge amount of, of, of uh, revenue that... Uh, really you know that that we could be generating if we could exploit uh, uh, credit and one of the reasons we can't do that is because of the two sections of the indian act Uh, section 89 uh, means no individual can access capital and that's one of the reasons why first nations uh, develop uh, corporations uh, first nation corporations and the like uh, because uh, of Section 89. And Section 89 really is, you know, a section of the Indian Act where you can't uh, uh, take uh, uh, land or, or assets away from First Nations. And that's not to mean that, you know, I, I believe in the wholesale, uh, you know, giving up of jurisdiction. But, but I, what I'm saying is that we have to have that jurisdiction as First Nations. Uh, so that it isn't uh, part of the Indian Act. And that's one of the limitations of the Indian Act is it prevents real uh, economic development and and ge- intergenerational wealth uh, uh, distribution, you know, because you've, you've got to, you know, it's like the, the stories of uh, selling cigarettes in a prison. You know, you, you can make, there's always some way you can make money. And that's through the development of loophole economies. What what we've got to begin to develop are real economies, and that means uh, getting rid of uh, sections uh, like uh, Section 87, Section 89, so that we can uh, insert our jurisdiction into that uh, legislative uh, vacuum, so there isn't one. And uh, you know, with 87, it uh, means uh, no. Uh, a contribution to First Nation government, you know, and so that that means uh, we're limited in terms of what we can do as First Nations and First Nation governments. Uh, because of the personal property exemption, that means that people can't use uh, their own property to go to the bank uh, and uh, and the like. And so, you know, it, it really limits uh, an individual. They, they can't be bonded. 
therefore can't get into a small business. You know, you can just think of a whole range of scenarios that affect us as a result of those two sections. And a lot of people have are under the mistaken impression that they're there to protect us. Uh, it's completely opposite. Uh, you know, the opposite is true because we can't exercise the you know our imaginations to its fullest uh, because of those two sections. It limits our ability. Uh, to participate in a, in a free uh, uh, marketplace under our jurisdiction. And obviously, you know, one of the things we've been talking about, and we just kind of hinted at it a little bit, is, you know, the development of our own land title system. Uh, and that would really be an easy replacement uh, for these uh, antiquated sections of the Indian Act. You know, when you think about you know, the, the limitations of the Indian Act, uh, you, you know, you can just go on and on and on uh, for a myriad of different sections. You can pick just about any section and say, uh, you know, people right now are talking about systemic racism. Well, that, that piece of legislation is more than systemic racism. It is a racist piece of uh, legislation. We should be allowed to be free. We should be allowed to be able to think for ourselves and act for ourselves. Uh, we're mature enough uh, as individual First Nations and as governments to be able to take on responsibilities over ourselves, determine our own priorities, raise funds our, you know, the way we, we choose to, uh, looking at the bounty of the land. And, and this is... You know, one of the things that does happen in, in terms of uh, uh, pandemics is that it allows people to have a pause, but also begin to really think about different ways of, of uh, placing ourselves in, in the future. And I think that if we don't use this opportunity, uh, we're going to be limiting ourselves and, and causing problems for future generations when it comes time uh, even though we're in the middle of this pandemic, for the next pandemic, because surely uh, there will be another one. You know what's ironic is, is that I read about the Oklahoma case and this this just when they decided that the, the Cherokee, et cetera, had the jurisdiction over this land and all these people got worried that they were going to lose their fee simple title. And of course, the court said, no, no, this jurisdiction is completely consistent with the, the be simple title and you face the opposite you know you had all these people worried that 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 creating fee simple title on reserve lands was going to cause them to lose their jurisdiction <laughs> well it's it's because of the in my view a lot of it's the the lack of imagination and and also the lack of knowledge over what you know what individual property rights entails property rights in in canada and the united states is what's called legal fiction. You know, we're dealing with a colonial government, of course, and, and they maintain they have all of the title to Canada, meaning the federal government, and the, the crown in that particular case is indefeasible. And, the you know, the who owns Indian reserves is a real interesting question when you, when you apply that across the country. Here in British Columbia, all Indian reserves now, because of treaties, uh, some of them have been transferred, uh, you know, obviously back to the First Nation, but they're housed in, in provincial land title systems. But the majority of Canada, uh, Indian reserves are, in, are, in, are under uh, provincial jurisdiction. So meaning the provincial governments have the underlying title to Indian reserves and the Indian Act and the federal government have administrative control over those lands. And so that sounds complicated, but, you know, those complications are a direct result of the colonial regime under which we live. And what I'm proposing through a, our own land system clarifies that. It, main, it maintains that we have jurisdiction for all time in a collective, uh, you know, way so that we collectively, just like Canada is owned by all Canadians, uh, First Nations land should always be owned by all of the First Nation, uh, you know, whether it be the Shuswap or Mohawk or, you know, Maliseet or Nishinaab, you know, however you wanted to approach it. But the fact of the matter is, is that once you have that explicit 
area recognized, then you can raise uh, individual uh, title so that they can go to the bank, build their own homes, build intergenerational wealth, begin to look after, you know, our populations ourselves. And, the, and that's a huge limitation. And that's one of the things that I think that and hope uh, that the uh, that the uh, tribes in Oklahoma begin to look at. Uh, they've invited me to begin to have this uh, discussion once uh, the court case is settled down. So I hope uh, I get an invitation soon to have at least a dialogue with them. That's fantastic. I think your friend Hernando de Soto once said, I, I saw the statistic in one of his books that 70%, I think this was the United States statistic, that 70% of small businesses were started with a home equity loan. Just to put some perspective in that. So denying that to First Nations people is really limiting entrepreneurship. Well, and when you add up all of that potential, that's what adds up to $175 billion. You know, it's, it's like even in Hernando's home country of Peru, you know, the majority of people down there, one of the reasons that Peru, even though they had the earliest shutdown, one of the earliest shutdowns of any of the Latin American countries uh, for COVID, uh, I think about 60% of the population doesn't have refrigerators in their homes. So that means they have to go out on a daily basis to be able to buy fresh produce uh, because they simply don't have the, the income uh, to be able to afford a refrigerator. And so a lot of, uh, you know, the economy in Peru and a lot of other countries are are what's called uh, informal uh, economies. And uh, that's, by and large, what we've been operating under here in Canada is we've got an informal economy. And what we have to do is make sure that we're part of the formal economy so that we can take advantage of credit, take advantage of institutions and build uh, more wealth uh, for not only for our communities, but individual community members and be a huge driving force uh, in rebuilding of the country after uh, the COVID-19 so that we can be a major player in terms of not only Canada's uh, resilience, but also the First Nations resilience. So thank uh, all of the listeners. And thank you, Greg. All right. Talk to you later. And I, oh, Hi, oh, hi, hi, oh, hi, 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 hi,